it's your girl Mel from our Sleep Life podcast, and I recommend that you eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from the weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Looking for gourmet meals? Try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. No fuss, no mess meals. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Simply heat and savor the good stuff. Tailor to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. We are celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats Bad on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Now head to factormeals.com slash sleeve 50 and use code sleeve 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is S-L-E-E-V-E-D 50 at factormeals.com slash sleeve 50. And again, that's S-L-E-E-V-E-D 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. A massive car bomb exploded outside of a large federal building in downtown Oklahoma City, shattering that building, killing children, killing federal employees, military men, and civilians. The chaos in downtown Oklahoma City did indeed resemble Beirut after what police believed to be a 1,200-pound car bomb ripped through the nine-story federal building shortly after 9 o'clock this morning. If it seemed like war... It's like a garbage pile. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. I found myself this morning looking back at things and thinking of things that I didn't really think about during the... During the thing, and, and tears still come to my eyes. They are saying there's an eight-foot crater, and several, a uh, couple of cars at least, have been joined by the heat and the force of the explosion. In Lebanon, a spokesman for the Iranian-backed Hezbollah said, "We are only interested in liberating our land from the Israeli occupation. We have no relation with the explosion inside the United States." There you see the farmhouse right now. Uh, this is where two individuals, we believe two, maybe more, uh, were being sought. Seemed like war. That's a farmhouse said to be owned by two brothers with possible links to the bombing. They are identified as James Douglas Nichols and Terry Lynn Nichols. Law enforcement sources say those two men and McVeigh were expelled from a paramilitary group for being too radical. Officials are refusing to speculate on what motive any of these suspects might have. I told me earlier this evening 
having to do with experiments in bomb making and a passionate anger against the federal government for its actions against the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas two years back is circumstantial but telling. One suspect, according to our sources, is in custody now. 27-year-old Tim McVeigh, the crew cut John Doe number one of the FBI sketch, had been stopped for speeding in this Mercury Marquee, 60 miles north of Oklahoma City, about 90 minutes after the bombing. Reno hinted at a wire conspiracy. I remind everyone that John Doe number two remains at large. He should be considered armed and extremely dangerous. There is a strong likelihood that other persons are involved in this tragedy as well. Seemed like war. Hello and welcome to the Deathcast. I am your host, best-selling author Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our next deep dive look into what is arguably one of the most infamous acts of terrorism to take place within the United States, that being the Oklahoma City bombing. Before we get into the story, however, before I even touch on the show notes, I want to give a trigger warning here at the beginning of this thing to those of you who are more sensitive to this type of topic. There are going to be discussions in this series that may upset and or enrage certain members of the listening audience because we're going to be talking about things such as white nationalism, racism, hatred for the government, as well as possible foreknowledge of the United States government, and a slew of other things that many people do know about this case but that seem to get lost in the generally accepted narrative when talking about the Oklahoma City bombing. So I want to throw that out there right at the get-go and also throw out there that this is not going to be a conspiracy theory series. We're going to be looking at hard facts and evidence in this case. Yes, there is some element of conspiracy theory to this case. We'll be discussing that as we get to it, but I'm giving you the definition of conspiracy theory right now at the start of it. When I say conspiracy theory, I mean that in regards to the fact that there are uh, were others involved in this attack on America beyond the two men who were convicted for it. I want to make that clear because people hear the term conspiracy theory and automatically they're thinking, oh God, aliens or, you know, the federal government set this whole thing up. No, we're not getting into that realm of conspiracy with this series. Just cold, hard facts that... Thousands of researchers, including people from Oklahoma City, have spent years digging up. Now that that little warning is out of the way, if you would like to follow the show on social media, just search for either Ian Totten, author, The Death Cast, or Corpse Creek Publishing. I am on most 
major platforms under those names. If you would like to sign up for the show's mailing list, go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com, click on the subscribe or sign up button. I don't send out a lot of emails, so you're not going to get spammed into oblivion in that regard. If you're interested in helping out the show, there's a couple of ways that you can do that. First and foremost is at CorpseCreekPublishing.com. Click on the donate button. Buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes. Let me know how you think I'm doing with the show. You can also go to wherever it is that you find your favorite podcasts, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. Anyone that leaves a written five-star review, I read them out on the air. You can also go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon and sign up to become a Patreon member of this show for as little as $2 a month. The very first Patreon episode went up a few weeks ago, and there are more to come. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, kick back, relax, close your eyes. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. For those of my listeners who are too young to have remembered it. The Oklahoma City bombing was an act of domestic terrorism that took place on April 19, 1995, at roughly 9.02 a.m. when a rider truck loaded with a fertilizer bomb exploded in front of the Alfred P. Mura building. The attack killed an estimated 168 people, including young children, and injured upwards of 680. More than a third of the building was damaged in this attack, which eventually led it to being demolished. So devastating was the explosion from this blast that 324 other buildings were damaged within a 16-block radius. 258 buildings had their windows blown out, and 86 cars were destroyed. It's estimated that the damage cost around $652 million worth of damage. Local law enforcement, state, as well as federal agencies responded to the blast, and it remains the single most deadly attack of domestic terrorism in United States history. When this attack happened, you could not turn on a news program without seeing some form of coverage of it, all right? We were inundated in this day and age with reports of school shootings and shootings out in public. This dwarfed all of them because this was not only, you know, a major act of terrorism, but it was found that the perpetrators were homegrown and that at least according to the official reports, 
their reasons for carrying out the attack were anger at the federal government over the things that they had done in both the Ruby Ridge Massacre as well as the siege at Waco, Texas. When news reports initially came out, the federal government was really tight-lipped because they had no idea who had perpetrated the attacks. There was a lot of speculation that a Middle Eastern terrorist cell had carried out the attacks. And pretty quickly, all of these organizations that were known to us released statements saying that they were not responsible for the attack. They also released statements stating that they were looking for at least two John Doe's who were seen in the area, seen leaving from the rider truck, videotaped fleeing the area, with some reports stating that there was three or more individuals seen fleeing the area. And that is important to our case, as it's known that only two individuals were arrested and convicted for carrying out the Oklahoma City bombing. The reason I say that that is important to our case is simply this. Within days of the attack and one of the perpetrators, Timothy McVeigh, being arrested, the government really quickly started walking back this idea that there were others involved. This despite the fact that there was massive evidence to the contrary showing that there was a conspiracy of individuals who were responsible for this attack. To this day, the majority of survivors of the Oklahoma City bombing do not believe the official government narrative. There are those out there who think that it's, you know, they are just backwoods yokels who are looking for a good conspiracy theory. That is not, in fact, the case. They held commissions in Oklahoma and grand juries to look at the evidence, and what they found was in stark contrast to what the federal government was saying, so much so that even to this day, these individuals, including the former mayor of Oklahoma City, continue to look into this case and ask for answers. One of the research materials I'm going to be using in this series is a book called Aberration in the Heartland of the Real, The Secret Lives of Timothy McVeigh by Wendy S. Painting, Ph.D. Now, there are some aspects of the story that is painted in this book that I don't personally agree with. Miss Painting's research on this case is really second to none. In fact, I don't believe that there is anyone in the United States who knows as much about this particular case as uh, Dr. Painting. So we're going to start at 9 a.m. on April 19th. 
We're doing this one a little different because there is a chronological order to things of what people saw and what they later reported. In other episodes, we'll be getting into the days leading up to the attack. But I just want to start with a basic timeline so that you can follow along. Roughly at 9 a.m., this is just moments before the bomb went off, a woman by the name of Dana Bradley was inside of the Murrah building. She was in the Social Security office that was on the first floor changing her son's Social Security card. Miss Bradley looked out the window and saw that a rider truck was parked in front of the front door. She observed two men getting out of the truck with the driver of the vehicle immediately walking across the street to the sidewalk. This individual was described as a white male. The passenger of the vehicle walked to the back of the truck before coming back around to the front of the vehicle and, quote, proceeded to walk very fast to the front of the truck. He went back to the sidewalk and left. This individual went in a op the opposite direction of the driver. The next thing Miss Bradley remembers is the bomb exploding. The explosion killed her mother as well as her two children, severely injuring Miss Bradley and her sister. Miss Bradley ended up being trapped inside of the Murrah building for five hours. Later, when describing the passenger of the truck to law enforcement, she stated that he was olive-complexioned man with short hair, curly, clean-cut. He had on a blue starter jacket, blue jeans and tennis shoes, and a white hat with purple flames. She stated in testimony that this hat was in fact a baseball cap, that the man did not wear eyeglasses or gloves, and he was clean-shaven. When shown a composite sketch of John no Doe number 2, Miss Bradley identified him as the man that she had seen exiting the passenger side of the building, although she did state that she only saw him from the side. As Miss Bradley was viewing the actions in front of the building, another individual by the name of Candy Avey, who had just parked her vehicle out in front of the Murrah building and was making her way towards the Social Security office, described being blown back and wrapped around the parking meter with her face hitting the car. She had seen a man walking into the front door of the building whose arm was blown off by the explosion. She also stated that this man was in shock and did not realize his arm had been blown off. In fact, she stated that the man, after the explosion, began trying to help people out of the building. After the bomb went off, numerous individuals stated that they saw suspicious-looking, quote-unquote, Middle Eastern men within the vicinity of the Murrah building, while another white male was seen 
in different locations. It has been stated that this white male, who was later identified as Timothy McVeigh, could not have been in all of these locations that it was claimed that he was in, in the time frame that it was claimed that he was seen, unless other individuals who had a similar build and facial structuring were involved. Just after the bombing, K. Heron Clark, who was crossing Broadway near the Murrah building, was almost hit by a brown pickup truck being driven by two men. Clark stated that they looked to be Middle Eastern and that the driver of the vehicle had a quote-unquote chilling look of fear or anger. At 9.10 a.m., an unidentified man who had been working at the Journal Record building, which is directly across the street from the Murrah building, was in the process of helping another employee to exit the building when he saw a Arab-looking man standing at the intersection of Northwest 6th Street and Harvey looking back toward the bombing and that the man had a large grin on his face. 9.30 to 9.40 a.m., a branch chief with HUD, who was also a survivor of the bombing named Jermaine Johnston, was on the, her way to the Kara McGee building to find her husband. Mrs. Johnston was on her way down 5th Street when she encountered two men in an alley, one tall and the other short and darker. She stated that she saw these men leading against an older model, faded yellow, four-door Mercury Marquis. One of the individuals asked Miss Johnston what happened and how many people were killed. Miss Johnston later stated that uh, the taller of the two men was Timothy McVeigh, and she knew this after seeing his picture on television. While the other man was approximately five foot eight and a hundred and sixty-five pounds. So here we we've got a few witnesses that are seeing at least two, possibly more individuals in and around the area of the Murrah building, with a few of them pointing out during testimony and in interviews with the news that Timothy McVeigh was one of these individuals. However, the other individuals are unknown, dark-skinned men. At 10.20 a.m., Timothy McVeigh was pulled over driving a yellow older model Mercury Marquis without a license plate. About 80 miles or 90 minutes after the bombing, he was pulled over by Oklahoma State Trooper Charlie Hanger on Interstate 35 near Perry, Oklahoma. When questioned by the trooper, McVeigh informed him almost immediately that he was carrying a gun with him. This is actually the reason why McVeigh was arrested for having a concealed gun in the car. The officer asked McVeigh for his home address, and McVeigh gave it as the farm that belonged to Terry Nichols' brother in Michigan. At this point in time, 
they police had no idea that they had arrested one of the individuals who was involved in the Oklahoma City bombing. Later, after booking him into jail, this trooper went back and searched his vehicle. Why, we really don't know, but the trooper ended up finding a business card in the back of the car, which McVeigh had apparently hidden after being handcuffed and placed within the back of the vehicle. And written on the back of this business card was TNT, $5 a stick, more needed. This is actually a fairly important piece of evidence, and it would later be used in McVeigh's trial to show that he was purchasing explosives. On the day of the Oklahoma City bombings, this is April 19th, a man by the name of Richard Wayne Snell was set to be executed for murders that had taken place in the early 1980s. Richard Snell was a self-avowed white supremacist, and he himself had been plotting to blow up the Murrah building in 1983, using a rocket launcher, which exploded in his hands while he was practicing how to fire it. Snell is said to have taken this as a sign from God that he was not meant to carry out this attack. Snell watched footage of the reporting on the bombing, and reports vary some said that he was appalled, but the majority concede that he was happy about the fact that the attack had been carried out. Some have postulated that Snell may have had foreknowledge concerning this attack, which is why he reacted as he did. In any event, Snell was executed that night, and in his last words, Snell stated, Well, I had a lot to say, but you have me at an inconvenience. My mind is blurred, but I'm going to say a couple of words. Governor Tucker, look over your shoulder. Justice is coming. I wouldn't trade places with you or any of your cronies. Hell has victories. I am at peace. Many people have seen this as Snell speaking directly about the Oklahoma City bombings and possible further attacks that were to come. Back to our timeline on April 20th of 1995, authorities released sketches of suspects, both of whom were white males, John Doe number one and John Doe number two. These sketches were compiled using witness testimony from both Kansas and Oklahoma City. Back to Perry, Oklahoma. While he was waiting to be arraigned by the judge, McVeigh attempted to secure bail using a bail bondsman, although he was unable to. On April 21st, 
the FBI, who obviously was investigating this attack, had learned of McVeigh's existence, and through witness testimony, specifically from the Dreamland Motel, they were able to track McVeigh down to the Perry Jail. While McVeigh was awaiting his arraignment and subsequent release from jail, the FBI contacted the Perry District Attorney's Office and requested that he be held. The DA's office agreed, and roughly an hour after making this call, federal authorities were on scene in Perry, Oklahoma, to take Timothy McVeigh into custody. News crews, as well as various looky-loos from Perry, gathered outside of the small jail-slash-courthouse and this was when America got their first real look at the man believed to be responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing. You can find images of this online, or you can see them on the Facebook page and various other social media. Timothy McVeigh being led out of the courthouse wearing an orange jumpsuit and shackled at the wrists and ankles. McVeigh was led from the jailhouse to a waiting black helicopter, which quickly took him to Tinker Air Force Base, where McVeigh was questioned further. In news reports after seeing McVeigh, it was noted that the crowd that had gathered jeered at McVeigh, calling him a murderer, a creep, a son of a bitch, a child killer, scum of the earth, and reporters noted on McVeigh's chilled and icy demeanor. was also noted that he had a thousand-yard stare, which was said to have further incited the crowd. Almost instantly upon seeing McVeigh, the news media jumped on the similarities between himself and Lee Harvey Oswald. Stephen Jones, who was McVeigh's initial defense attorney, later stated that the perp walk that McVeigh was brought on was eerily similar to the one that Lee Harvey Oswald had taken back in 1963, stating, Those old enough to remember saw in McVeigh the ghost of Lee Harvey Oswald, before going on to point out that it would have been much easier and safer for federal authorities to whisk McVeigh away from the back of the Perry County Courthouse he explained that the FBI must have tipped reporters off in this instance in order to get McVeigh's face splashed across the airwaves, which was done to bolster the agency's reputation. 
something that had been severely damaged in the years leading up to the Oklahoma City bombing. We will get back to our story in just a moment. From author Alistair Cross comes the Vampires of Crimson Cove series. When the sun goes down and the fog rolls in, the darkness comes out to play in the little town of Crimson Cove. By day, it's an idyllic mountain village, but after sunset, stay inside and lock your doors. Between dusk and dawn, the streets run red with blood. Two brothers, Brooks and Cade Coulter, know all about the darkness. One fights it, and the other is part of it. And although he tries to stay on the side of light, can you ever really trust a vampire? This is what New York Times best-selling author of the Walking Dead series, Jay Anansinga, has to say. Put Bram Stoker in a giant cocktail shaker, add a pinch of Laura K. Hamilton, a shot of John Carpenter, and a healthy jigger of absinthe, and you'll end up with Alistair Cross's modern gothic chiller, The Crimson Corset, a deliciously terrifying tale that will sink its teeth into you from page one. The Vampires of Crimson Cove series is available on Amazon in paperback, ebook, and audible. Also available on Kindle Unlimited. We are back. So after McVeigh was given this perp walk and taken to the Air Force base, the FBI began looking into information concerning McVeigh, and one thing that they noticed was that when McVeigh initially gave his next of kin at his booking, he gave the name of Terry Nichols, as well as Nichols' brother's residence in Michigan. Terry Nichols heard his name on the radio in connection with Timothy McVeigh and the bombing, and eventually turned himself in on April 21st. This was in Decker, Michigan. Nichols denied any involvement or foreknowledge of the attacks upon turning himself in, although he would change his story, admitting to having limited knowledge of McVeigh's involvement. Not long after this, the FBI identified another man by the name of Michael Fortier, as being a possible accomplice in the bombing. Fortier, who lived in Kingman, Arizona, was a known associate of McVeigh, and it was found fairly quickly that McVeigh spent time living with Fortier whenever he was in the area. For his part, Fortier denied any knowledge or involvement in the bombing when questioned by the FBI. Because there was no physical evidence linking Fortier to the actual 
criminal act, he was released by the FBI. It should be noted, however, that Fortier eventually changed his story. This was due to the fact that both the FBI and the media placed him on pretty much round-the-clock surveillance, and this got to him to the extent that he admitted to knowing McVeigh and having foreknowledge of the attack. So that is the timeline of events from the morning of the 19th up through the 21st when Terry Nichols turned himself in and the FBI looked into Michael Fortier. Now we're going to look at how these three individuals knew one another. All three men were veterans of the armed forces, specifically the United States Army. And it was quickly discovered that all three men held anti-government sentiments. They were involved, however, tangentially with what is now known as the Patriot Movement but back then was labeled as the militia movement. And as you're going to see the further we get into this case, there are a lot of twists and turns concerning McVeigh's involvement within these groups, but also there is a lot of interconnected activities concerning these organizations which if you believe the news media, really have nothing to do with one another, despite having very similar ideologies. The federal government admits as much that these organizations, especially during this time period and in the preceding years, were very much interconnected and oftentimes shared both finances, weaponry, and intelligence. After the federal authorities took control of McVeigh and Nichols and Fortier, the narrative that was put out very quickly began to change. With the government and the media both dropping the whole, you know, Islamic or Middle Eastern terrorist angle and instead focusing on McVeigh. In concert with this, very quickly they dropped the entire idea that it, there was more than one person in Oklahoma City on the day of the bombings. It wasn't like the federal government came out and said, hey, we made a mistake with this. Upon reviewing everything, we've determined only one person was involved with their boots on the ground when the bomb was placed and went off. They just completely stopped talking about it as though it had never existed. Again, this is important, as you're going to see the further we get, because so many witnesses saw multiple people prior to and after the explosion, but more than that, other individuals would later claim that they'd had foreknowledge and also helped to fund the attack, which was discounted by the federal government and let to lie and basically 
consigned to the dustbin of history as well as to, you know, delusional ideas of from conspiracy theorists. Very quickly, the federal government latched on to ideas that the attack was linked to the execution of Snell. That was first reported once they had McVeigh in custody that he had done this in retaliation for Snell's execution. They quickly switched gears because McVeigh was willing to talk to some degree to it was retaliation for the atrocities committed at Ruby Ridge and Waco, which I personally fully do believe is the reason behind McVeigh's involvement in the bombing. So, before we move further into all of the nuts and bolts of the case, we're going to look at briefly the two cases that are said to have inspired McVeigh to retaliate. We're going to start by looking at Ruby Ridge, the center of which was the Weaver family. Randy Weaver was born January 3rd, 1948 in Villisca, Iowa. He was a former United States Green Beret who served during the Vietnam War. Weaver married a woman by the name of Victoria Vicky Jordanson in November of 1971. Weaver eventually got a job working at a local John Deere factory while his wife was a secretary before deciding to stay at home and be a homemaker. Weaver, who was already fomenting some ideas of government hatred, is said to have read the book The Late Great Planet Earth, which was written by Hal Lindsey and was really about the coming apocalypse and the Antichrist and the rapture that was supposedly to come in the 1980s. This, coupled with Weaver's views on the government eventually led him to move more towards the Christian identity movement. Now, for those of you un unaware, Christian identity movement is rooted in white separatism as well as the white power movement, meaning that they are extremely racist, and hold that whites should be separated from all other races, whites are better than other races, and that Jesus was in fact a white man, and that those who were sp specifically meant to be saved were of the white race. There is more to it than that, but that's all I'm going to get into so far as the white separatist movement at this period of time. So, Randy Weaver starts to develop these beliefs in concert with his wife, who decides that the apocalypse is imminent and that they need to get away from society. They ended up purchasing a 20-acre piece of property in Boundary County, 
Idaho in the early 1980s, and then built a cabin there. As Weaver began to further himself in his ideology, he decided that he was against taxation, and eventually would run for sheriff in 1988 with the slogan that get out of jail free. The following year, Weaver ended up meeting a man by the name of Kenneth Fadley at an Aryan Nations meeting. Aryan Nations is, or was, I'm not certain which, one of the largest white separatist neo-Nazi organizations within the United States. Fadley was, in actuality, an undercover ATF agent who was in the process of infiltrating the Aryan nations using the alias of Gus Magiasano. Supposedly, Weaver agreed to sell Fadley sawed-off shotguns, which are illegal within the United States under a certain length. This led to Weaver being charged in December of 1990 with felony weapons charges. This led to the Weaver family moving from their cabin to another cabin near Ruby Ridge, which is in the Selkirk Mountains. Vicki Weaver ended up writing a letter to the U.S., attorney addressing the man as servant of the Queen of Babylon, stating in part, the stink of your lawless government has reached heaven, the abode of Yahweh, our Yahshua, and further stating, whether we live or whether we die, we will not bow to your evil commandments. So this is the setting for what is to come. The weavers had four children, 16-year-old by the name of Sarah, 14-year-old by the name of Samuel, a 10-year-old by the name of Rachel, and a 10-month-old by the name of Elisheba. Weaver ended up refusing to appear in court on his firearms charges, and this ended up leading to a bench warrant being issued for him. On August 21st of 1992, deputies of the United States Marshals went to Ruby Ridge in an effort to attempt to apprehend Randy Weaver. Weaver, in turn, refused to surrender, instead staying in the home along with a friend of the family by the name of Kevin Harris. The FBI sent in the hostage rescue team in an attempt to to talk Weaver out of the house, which led to nothing. Eventually, the Mar U.S. Marshals sent men up onto the property in an attempt to reconnoiter and figure out what was what and who was where. And six of the Marshals encountered Kevin Harris and Sammy Weaver, which was Randy's 14-year-old son. At this point, a shootout took place with the U.S. Marshals shooting the Weaver's family dog and Sammy Weaver being shot in the back by the U.S. Marshals as the young boy fled. 
Sammy Weaver died, and a full-scale firefight ensued, with Kevin Harris shooting Deputy U.S. Marshal William Francis Deegan in the chest, killing him. On August 22, 1992, an FBI sniper by the name of Lon Haruchi, who was acting under the rules of engagement, which basically meant that they were allowed to shoot any armed adult that they saw, saw Vicki Weaver standing, holding her 10-month-old daughter. She was shot and killed. Harris was wounded nearly dying from his wounds, while Randy Weaver ended up being shot once, although it was later found that he was unarmed when he was shot. Eventually, the standoff was resolved by a negotiator, as the negotiator was able to persuade Randy to allow Ward to get medical attention. On August 30th, Kevin Ward left the cabin and was immediately arrested with Randy Weaver and his three daughters surrendering the following day. After this, Randy Weaver ended up getting charged with a total of 10 counts. Surprisingly, Randy Weaver was able to get off on almost all of the counts with the exception of the initial weapons charge. When it was shown that Weaver acted in self-defense in the standoff with federal authorities, he ended up getting 18 months in prison and being fined $10,000 with time being credited as served, while Kevin Harris was acquitted on all charges. The U.S. government was sued by Randy Weaver, and because they did not wish to have all of the information concerning the siege and their actions to become public, they instead chose to settle out of court with Weaver ended up getting a couple of million dollars. So Randy Weaver became something of a folk hero among not just white separatists, but those who don't believe in the federal government exercising the overreach of powers that they continuously do. But in terms of the case we're currently looking at, again, he was seen as somebody who had stood up to the man, was prosecuted, and then attacked needlessly which resulted in the death of his wife and son, and then was able to walk away from it. So this was one of the first things that lit a fire within Timothy McVeigh. We will be getting into the other case next week when we discuss the siege at Waco and the fallout from that. I just wanted to give you a brief rundown of it and the reasons for the attack so that as we progress, you can see why McVeigh harbored this resentment for the United States government and why so many within the white separatists movement 
continued to harbor resentment for the U.S. government. Whether or not you believe in what the white separatist movement believes in, which I personally do not, it is, they do have a case in regards to this particular tragedy in that the U.S. government acted almost extrajudicially by killing people, you know, women and children, without any real legal standing to do so. And that's going to continue, like I said, as you'll see when we get into Waco next week, and the fallout from that, and what that did to the individuals who were within this nationwide movement, but also on the periphery of it, such as Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols. We are going to leave our story here for the week. Uh, until next time, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. If you enjoy the show, please consider signing up for the Patreon at tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. Like and subscribe wherever it is you get your favorite podcasts. Leave a five-star review and share it on social media. Until next time, stay morbid. Hey, it's your girl Mel from Our Sleep Life Podcast, and I recommend that you eat stress-free this spring with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from the weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Looking for gourmet meals? Try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. No fuss, no mess meals. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Simply heat and savor the good stuff. Tailor to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. We are celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats Bad on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Now head to factormeals.com slash sleeve50 and use code sleeve50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is S-L-E-E-V-E-D-50 at factormeals.com slash sleeve50. And again, that's S-L-E-E-V-E-D-50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active.